Alright, here we go. Take one. <laughs> Have any of my listeners ever achieved a Guinness World Record title? I have not, but my guest today has. And not only has he received this honor, but it's also in a sport that I am horrible at. (laughs) So please stay tuned. So you and I both can meet Scott Stokely, who is a professional disc golfer, teacher and author, and also fits into the premise of our podcast, High Wall Clean. I'll see you in a It's time to get high, and one of the greatest ways I get high is by hearing amazing stories of people who have tripped and fell in life, but stood back up. My name's Eric McCoy, and thank you for joining me again on High Wall Clean. You know, as that saying says, it isn't what happens to us that is of importance, but what we do about what what has happened to us that is of most importance. You know, I made bad choices in my life. I experienced and had to walk through the consequences that I created. But check it out. I stood up, I dusted myself off, and with hard work and determination, I believe that I'm doing important things. So my guest today is a professional disc golfer. He's a teacher. He's an author of Growing Up Disc Golfer. He has published an instructional book and video about disc golf throwing techniques in 2001. He has earned 17 world and national professional titles in major tournaments before leaving the sport in 2000. I think we're going to hear a little bit about that. He returned in 2014 and he continues to tour. Um, From my research and what I was able to find in 1987, he set a junior's distance record of, everybody figured this out, 155.83 meters. In 1995, he threw a Discraft X-Clone 200.01 meters, beating the previous Guinness World Records. Um, He also broke his own record in 1998. And in 2001, he also set a record for the longest throw sidearm, which apparently from what I could find wasn't published. Scott, I want to thank you for joining me today. <laughs> thank you for having me. So, you know, it's funny. There's there's only been a, a few times that I have played this sport and I am not good at it. And I really suck at it. Um, and what's funny about it is we used to take our clients at the first treatment program that I actually worked for to a park in Huntington Beach. I don't know if you've heard about it. Um, it was. I've been there. Off Beach Boulevard. But, you know, I honestly used to find it interesting with the 
serious people with huge bags full of all kinds of different types of discs. <laughs> we, we were renting them and had no idea there was putters, there was mid-range, there was drivers. <laughs> were you one of those people? Well, no. I mean, I played out at that course when I was younger. Okay. Uh, it, if it's the same one, um, it's, it, there was, when I started, play, well, I, when I started playing, there was one course in the world. I, I started playing on the world's first course when, when that was the only one. Uh, but I started playing regularly, you know, by regularly, I mean, every minute of every day in, by 1981. And by that point, the course in Huntington Beach was on the ground. So it's one of the oldest in the country. I never knew that sport even existed until I was probably close to 30. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's hitting critical mass now. There's about between 10 and 12 million players now worldwide on 12,000 courses. And the sport this last year grew by about 70%, 80% by whatever metric you have. Disc sales, organization membership, club stats. So it's, it's blown up. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. So uh, tell me a little bit about your story. So you were, uh, so at a young age, you started uh, the disc golf. And then from our conversation, I guess you'd left it for a while. Yeah. Well, I left it for the first time when I was around 18. I didn't completely leave it, but I wasn't taking it serious. I played every day as a kid. And then I decided that I wanted to spend my time playing poker and getting high and um, doing, I mean, I honestly call a lot of it just normal kid stuff, at least in LA at those times, it wasn't that unusual, but I certainly wasn't going to excel at anything. So if, if I had been in school, I wouldn't have been excelling at school either. So I was playing disc golf every day and now I was playing recreationally. And then I found the sport, um, I came back when I was 20 and then took it real serious and took it very serious for the next 11 years after that. Uh, that was up till 2001. And that's when you actually broke some of those records or? Yeah, the, the, everything I did on the course just about took place in the 90s. Uh, so I set a bunch of Guinness World Records, a um, bunch of world and national titles. So I was, I was a real successful competitive player. I was, as a, in just disc golf, I was ranked number two in the world for many years. Um, couldn't break through that to the number one ranking, but I, I aged out a pretty good career for myself. Not, there wasn't any money, in, or, you know, barely any money, uh, prize money, but sponsorship and other things. Um, I actually did pretty well. Like I was the first disc golfer to buy his own house from the sport. So I, I used to joke that I was, I was comfortably middle class, but I was the first person to be middle class uh, throwing Frisbees in a park. So, <laughs> And then you decided, obviously, to use that money for other things. Well, no, when I was, not when I was competing. When I was competing, I was eating right, exercising. I was absolutely, I mean, I was focused. I trained every day super hard. But when I left the sport, I, I took off in 2001. I was, uh, my, my daughter was born. And so I wanted to be home to raise my daughter. I wasn't going to be on the road traveling. And the, just the real quick, you, we can go into the weeds in any area you, you want. But the, the short story is after 
I, like nine or 10 years, I was actually very successful as well, uh, building online businesses. I, was, I built eight businesses from scratch that I built, got profitable, sold, um, very financially successful, and then started to not be. Things just, there were a number of reasons within the industry, but the dot-com bubble burst and other things, and all of a sudden I found myself struggling financially, you know, behind on mortgage, like a lot of people at that time. And I made a very, what I felt at the time was a very rational decision that basically if I slept less, I could work more. And if I worked more, I could save my house and I could pull out of this financial hole. I kept selling businesses. I mean, I, I had one business that was doing so well and I, that I sold that, you know, had I kept, I could have just lived off of forever. And so I was going to just build the next business, but this time I wasn't going to sell it. But as the mortgage and bills started piling up, sleep became less of a priority. So I, I truly had good intentions <laughs> when I started. And, um, you know, that's, you know, the slippery slope is the right description. It, it's basically the exact same equivalent as, as someone taking opioids because they just had surgery. You, you know, you, there's, there's people that set out to get high and party, and there's people that do drugs as a means to an end, but it's, you know, lack the self-awareness as to who we are, because some people have surgery and take you know, opioids, and, and then when the prescription runs out, they're done. Lots of people do that. There's other people that don't, and so, you know, we're not always self-aware until it, until it you know, bites us in the ass, right? So that's basically the, the slope it went down. Um, after a little while, my motives became less pure because after a while, then it became, oh, well, now I'm using the drugs for other reasons as well. So the good intentions kind of fell by the wayside in a little bit. And then it's just spirals because the thing about I found with most drugs is that you are, there is a period of time where you're quite like you function quite well on them, especially any type of amphetamine. There is a period of time where you will perform better. It's just, it doesn't stay there. And we don't know when we fall off, right? It's so interesting um, kind of what you're talking about, because it's very similar to sort of my experience that I had had. Um, and I'd kind of asked that question, you know, you must've lost your passion somewhere. You know, when I, I used to own a program in Anaheim, a treatment program, and it was called Serenity Life Counseling. And we did alternative sentencing. And it was a huge passion I had. I mean, we used to go to the courts. I would fight for people to get out of custody. You know, being a six-time convicted felon, right? Being able to go in back into a judge's chambers, meet with the judge, with the private attorney for the other people, meet with the district attorney, try to sell these people getting out there right? Well, I ended up losing my job there. We sort of kind of went down, you know, downhill. Um, I left and then I took another job over to another treatment program at very small amounts of money, you know, very low amounts of money. And so I made some bad choices that were originally of very good intentions, you know, I, I also kind of fell into this. Oh my God, I need money. I have a great, brilliant idea. I'm going to go out and sell dope, you know, to, to make some money to sort of, and methamphetamine was my drug of choice. 
And I felt the same way. I mean, originally when you do it, I got energy, I got focus, I got concentration, I can do this stuff. And then you start of sort of falling off. My rules were like, okay, as long as I don't slam it, as long as I'm not running around at night, as long as I'm not, you know, doing all this crazy stuff. But it was that passion that I lost. That passion just went away. Mm-hmm. Um, once I lost, you know, the business and ended up kind of feeling like, oh my God, now I'm back down here. Um, what am I doing? And things stopped meaning. Um, uh, you know, there was a lot of things that weren't of importance to me anymore. Is that kind of something you relate to? Well, for sure. Well, one of the things I, one of the pet peeves I have is that they're not much better at it now. I think they're better than they used to. But when I was younger, the way they taught drug education in schools was they never recognized the, (laughs) the good part. Like you would, you would open a textbook and it would describe the most pleasurable recreational drugs known. And it would say, here's what these drugs do to you. Nausea, headaches, paranoia. And it's like, they, they skipped over all the good stuff. And like, you knew that was bullshit. Like nobody starts doing a drug because it gives them nausea. No. Right. So like there is a period that, it works. I mean, there's people in Silicon Valley that are, have been popping Adderall for 15 years and they're still doing just fine. There's also people that go down the slope in, in a month, right? We, just, we don't know who we are. We don't know when that tipping point happens. That's what I think the self-awareness, maybe even self-awareness is impossible, right? Because like, we don't know. But as far as losing the passion, yeah, I mean, that's the transition went from business to, to getting high. Like, so I had a passion when I was doing drugs, my passion was doing drugs. I mean, that was, that was, <laughs> I mean, I, I just switched, I switched passions. Um, so, it, but what you're saying, I mean, healthy passions. Yeah. They, they became, I don't know. I don't even know what those are or what those, I didn't know what those were. Yeah. It, it, your, you know, your point on, on schools is, and I've said this many times, um, you know, on this podcast, and it's something that I'm fighting for. And I keep, you know, sort of pushing that we need to really look at our educational system. And you hit it on the nose, you know, that if I'm looking at a book and it's saying all these negative things, but then I've done drugs and I'm a young kid and I haven't experienced the negative consequences. And I'm like, dude, what the fuck's wrong with this stuff? (laughs) This feels great. It's wonderful. You're full of shit. You don't know what you're talking about. Just say no, you know, is the mantra. (laughs) Good old Nancy Reagan, you know, when I was growing up. I, this day, like my first rehab, when I was a kid, my mom put me in a couple rehabs. They didn't work. I, I thought they were silly. But I remember, like, I, I mean, I have a memory of being in some big group session. It was one of the, like, you know, once a week, the parents would come into some a huge, like, room with, like, 15 kids and 25 parents. And I was new. And they said something about how to quit drugs or how I couldn't quit drugs. And I said, I said to them, well, I could quit if I wanted to, I, but I don't want to. And everybody goes, oh, you're in denial. You're, and I'm like, no, I didn't, I, I was put here. I like doing drugs. Drugs are fun. There was no consequences. I was 15 years old. And, and I mean, there are at 15, of course, but it, there hadn't been in my life. 
I was doing psychedelics and having a great time. And so they were telling me that I wanted to quit drugs. And I'm like, You're, you guys are wrong. When I get out, I'm going to do them again. I mean, they just, they just, the connection, there was a disconnect between reality and the way it was taught. You said you went to your first program at 15? Well, yeah. So when I stopped playing disc golf, I was like eight, I was like somewhere around 18, 19, between 18 and 20 around then um, because I was doing harder drugs. But from the time I was like, I mean, I smoked pot at 12 and mushrooms at 15. But I, I mean, I, I've never felt that mushrooms caused any problems in my life. I, I never had a bad experience. So I wasn't, nothing was really going wrong in my, in my life because of take, eating mushrooms once in a while later on. So, but I was put in rehab with, you know, kids shooting dope and people, you know, doing other drugs. And I'm like, that's not what I'm doing. I'm just having fun with my friends watching Pink Floyd. So, you know, like a lot of kids. And by the way, a lot of kids are in there too. They smoked weed three times and their parents caught them and threw them in, threw them in rehab. Like that would happen. And I'm like, oh my God, you have no idea. The vast majority of kids who smoke weed three times live healthy, productive lives. So it was, it was weird. They just, it was business. That's all. So I was, uh, you know, director of a place in, in uh, Newport beach called Newport coast recovery. And we had a good majority of our clients that were 18, 19, 20 years old with rich parents that similar scenario. They had, you know, smoked weed a few times. They got caught drinking a little bit. Um, nothing major had happened in their life. And that was our battle. You know, our battle was, how do you work with these people? You know, how do you get these people to understand that, okay, we can look at the fact that, yeah, you know, and, and I look at my life and early on, the drugs didn't have major consequences, but they did later. You know, I mean, I had tremendous consequences, you know, 2002, I was looking at 15 years in prison and that's the hard thing to get the kids to understand. But I think part of it is we got to make sure that we go in with honesty. You know, if you're talking to young people, you know, or high schools, for instance, and this is a lot of what I've said before, but, you know, if I go to a high school and I want to talk to kids, I need to say, you know, I love drugs. I love getting high based on even on my premise of high walk clean. I don't do drugs, you know, but I love getting high and I still love getting high today, but I do it differently. You know, and if I went in with that mentality, people would listen more rather than, oh yeah, drugs are bad. Don't do them. You know, they're going to kill you but which they will sadly for a lot of people, but how do we get them to open their ears? You know, how do we get them to listen? There's so much I can relate to in your story. Cause you know, like in the nineties, I ran off with the grateful dead, you know, and I did that scene for, yeah. for some, some years and LSD and I loved LSD. I didn't have, you know, I never had a bad trip. Mushrooms never had a bad trip. I still even think today it's like, well, man, it'd be great to still do some, you know, because they're not addictive. That's just kind of where my mind goes. Um, I don't do them today because I need a clear head, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and right. so that's where I've gone in life. I think one of the problems that the educational system gets wrong is they have this thing, a single thing called drugs. And 
there's not drugs. There are different drugs that have different effects and different consequences and different. I, I was in Colorado and in Colorado, I, I mean, the amount of people that smoke pot in Colorado is very, very high percentage wise. I mean, it's just part of the culture there. And they are not a, a, a state that is facing problems with meth and opioids. And, and I mean, it's just not. There's an entire culture of people who are like, they're not drinking and driving and they're not beating their wives because they're smoking weed. It, it, but it's given the same name as heroin and meth. And it's weird, right? Alcohol, cigarettes, you know? It's, so it, it's, I think it's an unfair teaching thing to call something drugs when it's kind of like, no, that drug's bad. That one over here, guess what? Your parents have done that, you know? You know, I teach at a school and I mean, we do define drugs as, you know, and, and this is sort of the way they do define a drug is anything that alters the functioning of your central nervous system. And so by that definition, coffee, you know, caffeine's a drug, nicotine's a drug, you know, um, LSD, mushrooms, all of that stuff are drugs um, by that definition, which is sort of the way um, medically, they define it. Pharmaceutical medications. I mean, those are drugs. You know, uh, where do you yeah. stand today? Where do you stand today on on um, on that idea? Do you smoke weed? Do you? No, I, I don't. But I'm not anti pot. I think I've just aged out of it. I mean, I worked really hard. I'm I'm like I am not. There's nothing about me that's anti pot. I'm pro legalization. But it's been a few years just because I got too much, time, <laughs> I got too much work to do. Mm -hmm. So um, I, but I don't, uh, I can't, probably the last time I drank, I, I mean, I've never been a drinker. I can't stand being around people drunk. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm basically 100% clean and have been for a while, but it's not because I'm anti all these different things. It's, it's just because I, I don't know. I like being present for me. A lot of it's about like my life has never been better. Like I want to just absorb every single second of it. I want to be present with my partner and present with my friends and present. Not that I'm too close to my friends this year, but um, so yeah. But I, I have I have very strong. I, I mean, I'm pro legalization of everything for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, I, I fall like in a very middle ground, but I don't smoke. I'm a hundred percent legalization. I think that legalization is is the route to go for. Um, it, it's going to reduce a lot of the problems that we have. Oh, anywhere you, you've, they've looked into it, I mean, they decriminalized everything in Portugal. I think I think they just had their ten year anniversary a couple years ago, and according to the most recent poll they did on the ten year anniversary, something like ninety seven percent of people said they would not want to go back to the way it was before. Mm -hmm. That it just improved on all fronts. I mean, not just reduction of use, but reduction on societal harm. And um, yeah, I mean, that's that's a whole other topic. But I think that all the metrics have shown that prohibition doesn't work. It's not effective. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm definitely pro-legalization, but it doesn't mean because I want to get high or that I want my daughter doing meth because she can buy it in a store. That argument that, oh, if we legalize it, more people are going to do it. That's, that's not the way it's going to be because... I mean, people don't not use drugs because it's illegal. The people that don't use drugs are the ones that say, I want a different life. 
I don't want to, just like you had said, I don't want to be bogged down by, you know, um, my head being foggy, not being present, not being, that's why people don't use drugs. And I, I think the biggest, I mean, even though the data shows that less people will use drugs, even if, and I think this is the most compelling case for legalization, is that even if the data showed that 30% more people would use these drugs, like even if the data showed that increased drug in use increase would go up, legalization is far more self-harm and far less societal harm. So even if you had 30% more people damaging themselves with their choices, there's less burglaries, less armed robberies, less, less gang activity. And so I would still go legalization, even if it increased drug use, which it doesn't, just because yeah, you know, I'm also like pretty much a devout libertarian. I mean, if my neighbor wants to do something, that's fine. And if it's legal, he's probably not going to steal my TV. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I, I'm really a fan of, you know, hey, if you want to do that to yourself, by all means, you have my permission. And even if it did increase, um, you know, the government could put, have a little more oversight on it. Maybe it's safer than, you know, the, the battery acid that we used to smoke that was in meth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the part of the, the what they did in Portugal, they they went to the government was just having it was an epidemic by Europe, by, you know, Western European standards. I think there were places where drug use was worse. But by in Western European standards, like one percent of the population was do, using heroin. I mean, it was bad over there. And so the government finally said the war on drugs isn't working. So they gathered a panel of doctors and psychologists um, I think even criminologists, and they brought them together. They said, what do you guys recommend we do? We don't, we don't want to screw politics. Politics has gotten us into this mess. And they said, what do we want to do? And they came back and they said, it's two-faced. Number one, you have to decriminalize it, which was not popular at the time. I mean, the person that made these decisions to decriminalize it, I mean, they had balls because it was not a popular decision by with, with the problem that the country was having to, to then decriminalize it was like, what are you doing? But the second part of it was that as soon as we decriminalize it, we're going to have a ton of extra money because less cops, less jails, less incarceration, less like there's so much money that is we're not going to be spending on this. We need to take a portion of that money and put it right back into the system to help the people to treat them, not punish them. And so they, they instituted these, these programs like someone gets out of jail, this recovering drug addict who's a car mechanic, and they couldn't find a job because of their criminal record. Well, the government would go to an auto shop and say, well, what if we pay that half that guy's salary? So he's going to cost you half as much as the, as the, as the non-felon. Would you take a chance on him then? And at some point, money talks. And now people got integrated back into society. We're less likely to, you know, obviously relapse or go, go back to what they did before because now they had opportunities that the war on drugs took away from them. So a lot of it is, it's not just decriminalizing it. That was just, you know, that was the first step in the process. But they, um, treatment programs, they have all sorts of stuff over there that's funded by the government that they put the money into. But far less money went into that than went into jails and cops and, you know, ER visits for people that got stabbed for their wallet. Right. Yep. Sorry, that sounds a little bit. 
but I'm, I'm a real big fan of what they did. I mean, they, they tried this model and it worked. And, and so, yeah, you have so many people that are, you know, so, you know, 12 step like gung ho type people that, you know, if you're doing anything except obviously drinking a lot of coffee and smoking cigarettes, uh, <laughs> then right. you're not clean and sober. Um, but sadly, I just feel that that sort of takes away from the major problem of what we're actually seeing. You know, um, I mean, we can sit here all day long and we can say, you know, drugs are bad and nobody should do them, but that's not reality because people are right. going, people are going to do it, whether we like it or not, you know, the reduced supply, I can go anywhere and I can get drugs today. It's not, they're not hard to get. <laughs> and so the question becomes, so what do we do about that? I'm a big fan of that. So I got a question too. So, so you came, uh, what brought you back into um, getting, getting to where you are today? Did you, what were some of the consequences you experienced? So basically I had taken about 13 years off. And when I took off from the sport, I quit. I was, I was done. I quit. I gave away everything I owned related to it just about and then was off doing something separate. And I did not realize that anybody even remembered me. Like I, I didn't even, I wasn't keeping up with the sport. I didn't follow the sport because all I'd have to do is just follow it for a minute. And then my heart would break because I wanted to be there, but I couldn't do it because I was raising my kid. And so I just, all I had to have, you know, cold turkey from the sport. So when I started having my troubles and things started getting really bad, you know, everyone has their bottom. My bottom was pretty low. And at the time, my wife had just left me for another man. And by the way, in hindsight, I don't blame her. <laughs> but at the time, it was like, that's my world, my universe. And I felt like the biggest piece of shit, worthless human being who ever lived. Like I lost my house, I lost my business, I lost my wife. Now I'm I got this, this drug addiction, like you name it, right? And I happened to walk into a disc golf store called Fly Green in Denver, Colorado. And I was walking in there for well, that's another story, but I was I was walking into the store, I opened the door, and the very first thing I saw was a poster of me with my autograph on it hanging up on their wall. Mm. And I was like, I'm like, that's me <laughs> up on their wall. And there was two customers in there and they just went, oh my God, you're, you know, you're Scott Stokely. And the guy behind the counter goes, you're Scott Stokely. He runs to the back and I hear him yelling to the back, dude, Scott Stokely is in our store. And I'm like, you guys, I didn't even think anybody remembered who I was. And they came out and I got this, like next thing I know I'm signing autographs and they're telling stories about me to each other. And I'm just like, like, it almost like, who are you talking about? Like part of me honestly was saying, don't you guys know what a piece of shit I am? Like, don't you realize what a loser I am? You guys, you guys have no idea what you're talking about, but they didn't know. They just knew me as, you know, one of the guys even said, he goes, dude, you're, you're like my hero. Hmm. And so it was the first moment in at least a few years where I felt like me again. And then I always joke that I walked out the door and was, and you know, I walked out the door and I was like, I'm going to quit drugs. I'm going to get my game back. I'm going to go back out on tour, which, which is exactly what I thought. And then about five minutes later, I'm like, no, actually I need to go get high and figure out how to make some money. So it, it didn't last, but it was that feeling of, 
I know what this, I remember what it felt like to feel good for a minute. And so I decided that I need to get back into the sport. The sport just called me back to it. That's where I was somebody. That's where I was, people looked up to me. That's where I could build my self-esteem back, you know? So I, I was like, I need to quit the drugs. But I didn't have a clue how I was going to actually do it. I mean, it's so painful to go without them, right? Depending on the drugs. And I'm trying to make a plan for myself. And then I, I don't remember when, but it dawned on me. I go, you know, I have warrants in three different counties. If I go turn myself in, I'm going to be in the system for like almost a month. Because they got to transfer you. You got to wait for your court date. And I'm like, if I, if I go to jail, I'll get off the drugs. And if anybody's ever kicked drugs in jail, it's the most, like, kicking drugs is horrible. Doing it on a, on a concrete floor with a bunch of other sociopaths and junkies. I mean, it's, it's horrible. But I was like, if I do this, it'll force me off the drugs. So I, I, I went to the courthouse. I stood outside. I stuffed as much drugs in my body as I could. I threw away what I had left and went and turned myself in. And the next eight hours were lovely. Like I had a, <laughs> I had a blast for like the next eight hours. Then I started kicking them and then it got horrible. And then next thing you know, you know, ironically, there's other people going through the exact same thing right next to you. So you can't even like complain about it because that person is dealing with the same thing. But, but uh, you know, after like a week, the next thing you know, I'm eating again and then I'm getting healthier. And, you know, it was only like, it was less than a month. But by the time I got out, I was like, now I have at least enough distance where I could start to make other plans because I wasn't physically. And by the way, I, as you know, I still thought about constantly, but I, but I felt enough better that I could hold off. And then I decided I needed to go out on tour again. And I just, that's another whole other story, but like I, I hadn't played in 13 years. I wasn't any good anymore. I basically called up people in the sport I hadn't talked to in 13 years asking for help. One And then two people put me up. One person set me up with equipment. One person set me up with the events. Someone got me a vehicle. People I didn't talk to in like 13 years, everybody was right there for me. And they just, they took me back in. They never asked, I mean, that's what I was doing, but they never judged me. They took me back in. And it took about nine months before I started making money. But that that's kind of the short story, so. I, I was in a unique position, but I found, I found the thing that was my base. I found my people and I, I left the love I left, like was what I found again. Actually in my book, when you're, you know, you're given like one sentence to open your book that is, that's in quotes on its own page by itself. And that's going to be like, that's the message. If you have one sentence to provide a message to the world in your autobiography, what I wrote was, uh, go where the love is, not where it's supposed to be. Hmm. And my, my take on that had, wasn't just addiction, but it was that there's almost everybody, there's love out there. We don't always seek it in the right places. But, you know, it might be your family, but you might also be just as, um, you might struggle just as much seeking love from your family, and that's not where the love is, because the love is your old little league coach or the love was your best friend's family. Right. So to go where the love is not where you want it to be. And that's what I did. I went where the love was and that was in disc golf and the Frisbee community.
and they just adopted me back in like I was never gone. That's great. Man. I got to give you kudos though, man, on, on turning yourself in that, that mindset is, is good. I, that's not something I was able to do. I, I had the task force after me and I was, well, I was, if I was, if I had not been on the drugs and was craving drugs, I would never have turned myself in because that would mean not getting high. But when you are high, you can start to make these decisions. I mean, how many people, how many like junkies are there that just like they stick a needle in their arm and 10 minutes later, they're enrolling in college because when you have the drugs, like I always, I've said this to everybody that'll listen, the drugs aren't the problem. It's the running out of drugs or the tolerance, meaning you don't have enough drugs that are the problem. Like when we're high, I mean, a heroin addict that never runs out of heroin is a, probably a pretty functioning member of society. I mean, there's data to show this. They did something in Switzerland, if you, if you Google it, with, with 300 junkies. And when they gave them their heroin, they went back to the society. It's not the drugs that are the problem. It's the running out and, and the tolerance. Absolutely. So when I was on the drugs, it was issue because I had high hopes for life at that point. But I, I guarantee you, like, I don't even remember, but I'm sure I regretted it the next day or the next week. <laughs> <laughs> Is you were coming off meth, right? Um, actually, just no. So it was some some. I don't want to say the name because it was they were delightful, but some synthetic amphetamines we were getting directly from China off the Silk Road. Okay. So let's just say similar. Like the, our stories would be similar, but it wasn't that specific drug. I actually considered myself above that drug because I was getting mine from a pharmacy. You know, ten thousand miles away. You know illegally with Bitcoin, <laughs> but it, I felt superior. <laughs> it's amazing how that works, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me with methamphetamine, it was, you know, the, the come down is just massive depression. It's just brutal. Yeah. Uh, you just want to, well, and the thing that, yeah, well, and I've, I've tried to explain because I'm like, I'm a very, very public about this to everybody. And I've talked to so many people about it. and I've tried to explain and explaining what it's like to someone that hasn't done it is like explaining colors to a blind person. Like you really can't truly understand. But the way I've the way I've come close to describing what it's like to be on it and then off of it is that emotions are chemical. Right. I mean, when it comes down to it. When you have a nice home and a nice family and you're not behind on your mortgage, you get this sense of well-being and peace and safety and security. Well, ultimately, those are just chemicals in your brain that all doing all these things right have made the chemicals release. And then you feel these things that feel good, right? But that's what we're supposed to do. And I've always described that when you do the drugs, you get those same chemicals. So you can be in a shit hotel room with some person you met, you know, the day before who also is doing the same drug as you some piece of shit, although you're a piece of shit too, but you're at that moment for some reason, because of the chemicals, you feel just as at peace as you do when your mortgage is paid and you're, you have money and savings and health insurance. It, you feel safe and secure because it's just chemical. And so when you run out of the drugs and you're off the drugs, that's the same as losing your savings account, it's the same as losing your, your home, losing your job. Like all of a sudden you don't have those feel good, safe chemicals anymore. 
it's like, damn, there's, well, there's two ways to get those chemicals back. One of them is going to take months and months of hard work and savings and dedication. I mean, one's really hard and one is a phone call away. And so, yeah, everything you described that depression, it's like, it's just chemical, but all you need is just one fix. And then all of a sudden your mortgage is paid again in your mind, right? Well, the part of the brain that your feelings come from, which most of your feelings come from your limbic system, as you had mentioned with the chemicals and neurotransmitters, is is the same part of the brain that pleasure comes from. It's the nucleus accumbens, which is all a part of the mid part of the brain, the survival part of that brain, you know, and that's where things get difficult. You know, if I'm doing something that's manipulating my survival part says you have to do this or you're going to die right? There's nothing above survival, right? Right. And so, yeah, you're definitely manipulating, you know, that part of the brain and yeah, getting off it for me. I mean, I had 11 years, um, 2013, I relapsed, you know, when I had that experience where I lost my business and, um, you know, I was out for six months, life went bad real quick and I ended up back in rehab, which was very humbling being the fact that I'd been program director, clinical director, executive director of programs, and now I'm back in treatment. <laughs> and, uh, and I just, every, you know, that time, I just remember going like, I, I, I can't do it again. I can't do it again. You know? And I remember, I mean, I'd get into the treatment and I had no control of my feelings, zero, you know? I mean, I could just be sitting there and then just tears flying out of my eyes for nothing nothing was going on. You know, I'd sit and watch uh-huh. a, sit and watch a movie. You know, I remember when I was in custody in 2000 and in 2002, they had Pearl Harbor, the movie Pearl Harbor playing in, in our, in our mod at the jail. And towards the end of the movie, you know, that, that movie gets sad. <laughs> and, uh, and I just remember like, I mean, I'm like holding it back at tears running down my face. <laughs> And you're like, okay, I'm in jail. I'm supposed to be a badass, right? <laughs> and uh, well, that's... and also, I mean, if you want to, like, if you want to describe the negative effects of drugs, just tell someone that you cried watching a Michael Bay film. <laughs> like that. That's that's level of like that. That'll that'll scare people straight. <laughs> I think it was Michael Bay. Or- that the one where they refused to use the word Japanese because it wasn't PC, so they just became the enemy or something like that. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's tough, man. It's really, it's a tough, that's why, you know, it's like for me, I mean, I, you know, having all those memories, I just got to keep that in my head, you know, that I can't do that again, you know. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think I'd have another comeback to it if I went out and did it again, you know. Yeah. And, uh, well, the thing when I give that I'm really public, I got a, I got a pretty big following. I mean, it's not huge by social media standards, but I got a few, you know, a few tens of thousands of people that follow me. And so I, I do wind up talking about this a lot with people and posting. And the, the one thing that I say to people that was most effective for me that I learned was that at the time when I was, when I was using I could not imagine happiness without it because when you're using and you run out, that ain't happy. Like it isn't happy a week later after you stop using, right? It takes longer. 
And so it's hard to picture life without it. Like I actually thought instead of thinking, wow, I was happy for all those years without drugs. I started to honestly believe that if I ran out of drugs, I, you know, I'd be miserable. I started to believe that I was never really happy in, without the drugs. But even before I started using, I was, I was never happy, which is not true. I was very happy and I'm very happy now, but I didn't, I couldn't see the light. And so, but like one thing I tell people is that if it feels that way, it's not true. That's a lie. That's, that's the lie that the drugs or our brain's desire for drugs tell us, you know, that, that that's the only way to be high or to be high while clean. Right. It's the only way to be happy. You know, like, but it's not. No, it's a concept. It's I, can high, I can get high every day, you know, and it's uh, but I do it in a way that's different, you know, I mean, your story is based on, I tell clients this, you know, is that, you know, people get sober, people get clean and sober for, because of what they don't want, but people stay sober because of what they do want, you know, and yes. everybody ends up in rehab because I don't want to go to jail or I don't want to lose my family or I don't want this. I don't want that, but I stay clean and sober today because, you know, I want to have a great marriage. I want to be happy. You know, I want to, um, you know, be successful in life and it doesn't have anything to do anymore with the things I don't want. You know? All right. You know, one thing that's, I think tough is when it comes to finding happiness though, is that like our brains suck, <laughs> you know, we do right. Like if there, there was a catchphrase that I wanted to like put on a shirt, it's going to be brains are assholes because brains, brains suck. And the things that cause, I mean, we want to find pleasure in all these things. And, but sometimes our brains, depending on who you are, it's, it's easier said than done. And some people's brains are fantastic at it. I always feel like the drugs can only fill a hole if the hole's there. Because you know from being in your world and my world too, you've known people that like they tried cocaine for the first time and you're like, what do you think? They're like, yeah, I didn't do anything for me. And it's kind of like, and they never do it again. And the reason, I think the reason it didn't do anything for them is I think probably their brains worked fine and there was no hole for the cocaine to fill because they were getting enough dopamine, enough serotonin, enough norepinephrine, whatever combination it was in the right ratio, you know, I'm not trying to sound smarter than I am, but at some point their brains work and the person that is susceptible to it is the person who, and they might not have ever realized that they were only getting half the dopamine they needed to be happy. And all of a sudden that cocaine filled the other half and they're like, Oh shit. But I'm not even sure that person feels better on the drug than the person whose brain operates normally. It's just, they were down here and they, the drug took them up here. I, I really believe this. And so when people, you know, struggle with the, the drugs and trying to find happiness. It's, you got to find something to fill that hole. And I, I'm a big believer in going to see your doctor, you know, trying to find the right antidepressants, trying to find, you know, something that can balance the chemicals in your brain. And it does not mean that they don't overprescribe antidepressants to children. It doesn't mean that everybody that has a bad day should be on antidepressants because it like anything else it gets abused. But I, I truly believe that there's people that 
even if they never did the drugs again, if their baseline's down here, they're still not where they should be. And there are chemicals, that, there are things that we can do to take us up there chemically that are harder to fill with just, you know, exercise and, you know, reading, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm pro those, and I, I don't take antidepressants, but I've just, I've seen people have their life changed when they've taken them. And so I, I'm a big fan of going to see your doctor too, as part of the process. I don't know if that's what you feel. 100%. I mean, you, you know, you're kind of based on the premise off that self-medicating concept, you know, like there's a, a reward deficiency in those of us that, you know, yeah. um, you know, abuse substances. I believe that 100%. Um, you know, I look at all the people yeah. that I used with, I look at all the people that I knew prior to us abusing drugs and it was all very similar to that. You know, they always seem to have kind of a doom and gloom, you know, growing up, I never felt, you know, that excitement in life, you know, something was missing. And then I did meth, you know, and I was like, wow, I mean, why isn't everybody doing this? <laughs> That's what I literally felt. <laughs> well, yeah. So you, you do math and all of a sudden you're like, Hey, it's kind of fun to spend the next two hours cleaning the house. Well, guess what? That the healthy person, you know, once a week enjoys cleaning their house for two hours because they want a clean house. And like they do like, you know, we needed the drug to take us to that place that, but I, it's not, I don't think it's that elevated. I think we just get, I think we get normal on it. I really do. Or maybe it's a little above. Well, I mean, you can't discount it's a drug, right? But something about the fact that there's people that try the drugs and go, that does nothing for me. Or, or the people that take, they take Oxy for four weeks after their surgery and then they just stop. Well, why does that person, why do they just stop? Well, if they weren't filling a dopamine hole with Oxy, then they can stop it. But that other person goes, uh-uh, I ain't giving this shit up. This is the first time I felt good, right? I mean, a lot of clients I've worked with, they have that idea like, oh my God, I don't want to be on meds the rest of my life. You know, and I look at them and I say, it may be, why not? I mean, if I'm not, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not telling them they should do that. But I mean, I, you know, if it is what it is, if it's going to help save your life, you know, I mean, based on your life experience is like, okay, you don't want to be on an antidepressant, but you'd rather be on heroin. <laughs> you know, I think the antidepressant safer. <laughs> you know? Well, it, it also could, it can be a short term thing, right? So you have this deficient hole that's not being filled with pleasure, but it's, it's a catch 22. So because you're feeling depressed, you don't want to go start exercising. You don't want to go join a, a basketball team at the gym. You don't want to reconnect with old friends. You don't want to dot, 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 right? So it's become self-fulfilling. But if you take the antidepressant, you start feeling better. You start engaging with people, engaging with life, taking on hot. Maybe you go back to college and get your degree. And then all of a sudden now you can afford to have fun things. A lot of people on antidepressants phase off of them and they're perfectly happy, but it dug them out of the hole. How much time do you have off of off of the drugs? You say two years. Well, no, it's it's been off off of anything, any hard drugs, like seven years. Oh. Um, and then I, I, off and on for probably four or five years after that. But it was always a night before I went to bed at night. 
I never functioned on it. So it was never something that was part of my daily life. Again, I'm not anti. I mean, I'm in, I was in Colorado. I know people that that's how they medicate and that's how they get through life. Perfectly happy functioning people. So I'm not anti that. I just was never a, a regular smoker. It was before I went to bed at night. It helped me sleep. I had absolutely, I have, I have back issues. It absolutely would allow me to sleep better at night. Um, I don't know why I stopped, I stopped smoking either. Just, I just lost interest in it. Yeah. No, Me, but it's been, and I don't drink, I don't do anything. I don't smoke. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm those <laughs> Weed always makes me stupid. <laughs> just fogs up my head. I get lazy and I just sit and eat. And <laughs> hey, so question for you. If, if, um, if you were to say, uh, send a message out to people that may be struggling, what would you tell them? That it, it does get better. It's, it's pain is temporary. And so is pleasure. Your good days are also temporary because there's bad days going to come also. But it's just hard for me to imagine when I was on the drugs that, that I could live without them. I didn't see that I could. And, and the reason I didn't see that I could is because when I was off them in those brief periods that I, I was completely non-functioning. Mm -hmm. So in between highs, of course you don't function. That's, that's what withdrawal is, right? Mm -hmm. But there is a period of time where you do feel better. And I have found that it's worth it, you yeah. know? But you have to you have to trust that it's going to get better. And and by the way, getting better doesn't mean a week later. It, it could be a, quite a bit longer than that. Could take a so, year. Yeah, it could take a year. You got to find what what makes you happy. You have to find something. You have to replace the drugs with something. If you stop doing drugs and then try to replace it with sitting around watching Netflix at night, I think you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. You have to find something that you enjoy, which could be another person or people, but we need to fill the hole because when the drugs leave you, you're leaving a hole. I mean, there was a hole that the drugs filled without the drugs, that hole's back. The hole doesn't just fill itself up. You have to fill it. So I would say that there's uh, it does get better if you're willing to do it. And I would say probably the biggest thing is don't be afraid to go to your doctor. I think it's too, I think it's important that, you know, people also realize medications aren't a cure-all. So you have no. to actually put things along with it. You know, you talk about with uh, depression, you know, one of the greatest things you can do is, okay, you take an antidepressant, but you got to exercise, you got to get up, you got to push yourself, you know, you got to do things that are going to assist with that, with that medication. Here, I got one more for you. You say some things work, some things don't work. And I'm not going to go on to some rant where I feel like I'm, you know, knocking one solution or another, but there is a really big recovery organization that we all know about that will tell you that is the only path to sobriety and the only path to happiness. And that's bullshit. Um, it is a path that works for some people. It is not the only way. It is not the only solution. If it doesn't work for you, it does not mean you got to go back to what you're doing. It means that didn't work for me. What about this thing? Yep. Don't let anybody tell you that there's only one path to getting better. That's, that is the biggest, I mean, that's a fucking lie. 
Yep. So it is. There's a lot of ways you can do this. I, uh, I know a lot of people that have years clean and sober that never went to rehab nor never went to a 12 step program. And, uh, you know, there are, there are also a lot of people out there that say the 12 step program is the only thing. And, and I agree that it is not the case. Um, no, we're, so, we're all, we are all different. There is no one path for every person. There's, there will never be one way yeah. for all of us to get better. Yeah. Hey, I want to thank, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, man. And I want to thank everybody for tuning in to another episode of high walk clean. Keep getting high. And uh, as I always say, I'm going to keep doing it clean. I'll see you guys soon. Thanks.